0: Hey there. My name's Tim. Welcome to The Table, the podcast edition. The Table is a community that exists to make room to explore what we believe. What you're about to hear is an edited version of something that we call the talkie bit. We're sharing it with the hope that it can be a positive catalyst and encouragement to you in your own explorations. In our experience, exploring what we believe can sometimes be hard work, and we don't think anybody should have to do that alone. We're able to offer this because of the generous support of donors both within and beyond a local community. If you want to contribute to keeping it going, you can find information about how to do that at thetablewinnipeg.com. Thanks for dropping by. I want to approach our time together today in a slightly different way than usual. Typically, um, what I set out to do is offer some reflection on an idea, a belief, an issue, with the intention of providing a starting point for our own explorations as individuals and Maybe perhaps with others we know or in the context of community. And I've talked about this before. This this is in my ideal world, the way that this would work is that any given talkie bit would reasonably be understood or experienced as a catalyst for exploration. And I would I would describe that way as distinct from a destination. We're gonna go here and then we're gonna stop, is not the idea for me. The idea is we're gonna start on a we're going to start in a direction, and then I'm going to stop. And you're going to go where you go. And I think that works functionally at least some of the time. Uh, I had a conversation recently with someone who's part of the community who was describing to me what it's like for them to try to help a friend, someone who's never been here, to try to understand what it's like. Uh, and in particular, they were trying to unpack this part of our time together, the talky bits. And uh, and they they said something to me as they were trying to describe this along the lines of, it being a time, so when they're trying to describe the talkie, but this is a time where whoever's, you know, kind of doing the, leading the thing, shares something and encourages people to think about it for themselves. And I, I found that really heartening. I was like, oh, good. (laughs) You know, I'm really glad that's the way you experience it. Um, It is for sure what I hope will happen. It is also what can make a place like this, a complicated one to share with others. Because, It's much easier in many regards to be part of a community where you can say we believe about a bunch of things and know that either everyone in the building agrees or at least everyone in the building knows where to look up the document that articulates whatever that we believe statement is, right? Now, having said that, I deliberately said easier in many regards, not in all regards. We could say that where it ceases to be easier in a context like that, where it ceases to be easier to be part of a we-believe community is the point where you realize that you don't believe whatever the we-believe is. Because it's in that exact moment or in that season, because it's not always an epiphany, is it? Sometimes it's a, quite a process. That it's in that moment or season that you realize that you are not part of the we anymore. Because the we has a, has a boundary. It's hegemonic. It has clear demarcations. That's the way any hegemonic system works. I mean, I've sort of illustrated it in ways that gesture towards religious systems, but any hegemonic system functions like that. Those systems can clarify, and just as much as the clarification might be a strength of that sort of a system, so is potentially the crispness of the exclusion from that kind of a system, the clear demarcation between in and out. And as a species... We like clarity. There's a reason why we're attracted to some elements of those kinds of systems. We like clarity. Put it another way, we're averse to uncertainty. Uncertainty stresses us out because it signals danger, right? Not knowing how something works just sets off all kinds of things inside of our brains and our bodies, ourselves that just basically hit a bunch of runaway fast buttons or curl up in a ball buttons or get your dukes up buttons, right? We react to that stuff. That's how we're wired. And if you add to that the power of shared beliefs and the momentum of, you know, groupthink, you've got something that is potentially rather appealing, which I would define in the context of this reflection as a group experience that can promote a sense of safety, of belonging, of strength in numbers, of we're on the right side. Those are the kind of experiences that when we're having them from the inside, they can feel truly awesome especially when other things we might use to feel secure are in a state of change or uncertainty. Then those experiences of I'm in and I know exactly how to be in and what defines in and I'm it feel great, right? Now, the table and our reason for being, which is making room to explore what we believe, I would say the table operates in a space that's adjacent to what I just described, but it doesn't really fit inside it. We have something in common. We we say it right up front. Why do we exist? We exist to make room to explore what we believe. There's our whole statement of belief right there. Like, that's it. That's why the table is here. When we meet or when we talk to other people for whom beliefs are in flux, who are examining or maybe they're disassembling things they've been taught, who feel as though they have relatively little about which they're certain, we might feel some sense of, those are my people, right? I, I, this me too. This is the space I'm in. At least until we get to know where their particular explorations are taking them, and then we might feel otherwise, right? Again, pretty normal human experience. We're like, I'm glad you're exploring. You go ahead over there because that's not where I'm going. And so that can be the challenge. And when that happens, then being part of a community like this calls for something that I would say is more generous, it's more expansive, and it is less (coughs) self-securing. Those things go together. Because it calls for us to be willing to explore in the company of those that we might describe as not like us. I was somewhere the other day, I won't say this verbatim because it's you know, a family-friendly show, but uh, you'll know what I'm talking about. There was a, a needlepoint on the wall that said, and it was all very pretty, you know, as needlepoints sometimes are, and it said, Home is where them effers aren't. <laughs> And I, was, I just laughed out loud. I'm like, that is—I mean, that is so funny, and it's so true of us as humans, right? Where do I feel at home? Wherever whoever I other isn't. Now I'm, now I'm at home because them efforts aren't here, right? You know. So yeah, somebody got it and put it in a nice little needlepoint for us. Very tidy. Could have saved us a half an hour today. <clears throat> when it comes to considering how we might contribute to making our world better—a safer place for everybody—I would contend. Because I believe that being willing and practicing enough to even become skilled at exploring with those whose beliefs are different from our own is actually essential. I think it's really, really difficult to reasonably imagine contributing to the world being a better, safer, kinder place if we are not willing to engage in those kind of spaces. And increasingly, we find ourselves as a collective society not getting better at that, but getting better at its... um, at its fairly binary alternative. I would say that unless we find ways to lean into that kind of a space, I think all we've accomplished really is the construction of a new we believe enclave and the shrinking of the exploratory space that we're making. Not helpful. Now, having said that, I also know by experience that there can be hard to discern but still real limits to the range of diversity that can thrive within a given group of people. That's part of what it means to be human as well. And it's, that's a moving target, full on. And sometimes I can feel the tension of that here in this community. As a personality, I don't care for conflict at all. I'm quite conflict-averse. And so that experience doesn't feel good to me. It's not that I don't have any capacity to navigate it, but it's not a nice feeling. And I don't personally believe, having said that, I don't personally believe that my discomfort, in most cases like this, actually signals significant, or real danger. There might be exceptions to that, but they would be relatively rare. My discomfort is not the bottom line when it comes to actually being in danger. If it was, oh my word, (laughs) I would be in danger a lot sometimes. Now, if I hang in there, that means when, when I have that feeling of discomfort, when I hang in there in those spaces, I'm in a space where I can learn and grow. I'm in a space where I feel uncomfortable, but I am, in fact, essentially safe. And that's, that's the growth space, where I feel discomfort, but I'm actually not in danger. That's where I actually learn things. If I feel discomfort and I am in danger, I should get out of there. If I feel comfort and I'm in danger, I should get out of there. That's the space where people get hurt, is where we're comfortable with danger. We think it's normal. And then the other space is where I'm comfortable and I'm safe, and then I can just chill. And we need that space too. But if we only stay in that space, we never learn anything new because it's just like, I know how this works, right? So little, a little way to kind of understand that. The boundaries, having said that, the boundaries of that space where, we, I, where someone feels uncomfortable but they're essentially safe, the boundaries of that space are different for everybody. Those, those are not prescribed boundaries. My hope is that in this community, we can all work together to make that space as large as is possible in the context of this community. So I feel quite conscious about that, because I believe that that's the sort of work that can benefit all the parties. I think that is truly the kind of work that can behave like a rising tide that lifts all boats sort of thing. Now, we've been exploring these ideas around rest, and more specifically around rest as resistance, Uh, rest as a path that could open into societal change, into social justice, and so on. And I think in the process of that, we've occasionally made some bulges in the comfort bubble around here. Now, to be clear, when I talk about that in this context, I'm not saying that because of any particular conversation. I am not dancing around an unarticulated conflict. It's more that I feel confident in my own bones that these ideas are disruptive on levels that most of us have only begun to scratch the surface of. We just, we, just, we just dipped our toe in the water. I know that some of the ideas that we've been talking about assail cultural norms that are so deeply ingrained that they are invisible to most of us most of the time. Except perhaps in the moments where we have this feeling, in what we might call our souls, the center of ourselves, that something very, very big is also very, very awry. Now, hold on to your hat for just a minute. I'm going to take a little detour. That feeling that something big is not right, pretty familiar human feeling, that is a feeling that a traditional Christian theology or doctrine like like sin is actually taking on. It's actually an attempt to address that feeling. So let me unpack that. So first of all, do not be afraid. <laughs> This is, this is not the moment where I suddenly take off my we're here to explore mask and reveal, you know, the fire and brimstone preacher it's been hiding. For better or worse, uh, that's just not in me to do. Uh, probably most of all because it's not what I personally believe. But if you grew up around any of those kinds of teachings, just think about it this way for a moment. If, if this is triggering and you need to leave the room, I'll understand. But otherwise, let me invite you to a gentle exploration here. We live in a world where terrible things happen where massive inequities exist, where atrocities get hidden in plain sight by all kinds of things, including revisionist tellings of history, by the normalizing of systemic injustice, the colonizing of minds, bodies, entire people groups. And as a species, because those kinds of things signal danger, we're hardwired to ask why. Why is this happening? About those sorts of things. We're unsettled if we don't have an explanation for why they exist. And we are all sinners, is a super-tidy shorthand answer to those questions. Why is this happening? Because a person's a sinner. Why am I having the experience I'm having? Well, probably because you're a sinner, so on and so forth, right? It's, It's all about fallenness, if you want to put it into a different doctrinal frame. It's also a rather efficient setup for a narrative that says, and if you can accept this particular set of beliefs, that problem can be solved, can be resolved. So, the other side of the equation, right? Except lots of people have accepted that set of beliefs that's supposed to solve the problem, and the problem is not only not resolved, but it seems to be growing, and far too often in the name of exactly the system that claimed to offer the resolution. Now we have what my grandfather used to call a sticky wicket. <laughs> we got a problem, sticky wicket. Um, from an expression from another culture's game i think generally speaking now we're in trouble now we're behind the eight ball now we're in a tie with 30 seconds left whatever metaphor you want to use those are all sports because i started with wicked so despite the obvious appeal of the tidiness of those kind of systems we might have experienced that way of thinking as something more like trauma or constriction or a system of belief that We could live with and can't anymore, or our ability to live with it or with aspects of it is changing, all those kinds of experiences, and that might have set us off exploring. Which brings me back to the topic of rest, and particularly rest as resistance. So in the series that we're in, we've recently considered how rest and the healing that it can foster are not cookie-cutter ideas. They're not prescriptive, programmatic ideas. They don't work or look the same for everyone. Having said that, they often have characteristics or aspects in common. They have, they have sort of discernible entry points, if you will. And one of those entry points is, I find at least, very accessible. And I'll, I'll, I'll get Tricia Hersey, who's sort of been our senior guide in this, uh, in this stuff, to articulate this for us. To turn your attention inward, away from that which is causing trauma, even for a few minutes consistently over time, is liberating rest. It's a mind shift and a collaboration with your body and mind centering on repairing the harm that never stopping and pushing through creates. Grind culture requires that we ignore anything that is not centered on labor and doing. To resist... While living in the very system pushing a machine level pace will be, listen to this, will be a slow and meticulous action. To resist while living in the very system pushing a machine level pace will be a slow and meticulous action. You know that B-movie moment where the character grabs the edge of the table and does that and just turns the whole table over thing, you know? Sometimes when we're in the thick of trying to resist, we just we want to be that B-movie hero. We want to just upset the table of injustice. We want to upset the table of grind culture. We want to upset the table of capitalism, run amok, oppression by whatever name and under whatever system. And there are probably moments for that. But often... Those that, that way of thinking and approaching change begets violence. And it's actually violence that we're trying to resist with a movement like sacred rest. So sometimes we need to reinform our imaginations about how this can happen. And I think I find Hersey at least very, very helpful in that regard. She goes on to note that living within grind culture offers us, and this is back to where we just spent half of our time together already, offers us what she calls the myth of control. Now, my sense is that she is using the word myth here in a way that we've considered in this space before. She's using the word myth to mean something like a guiding story, right? The way we make our way, navigate our way through the world. Guiding stories are powerful, especially to those for whom they seem to be working. In this community, a very high percentage of us are here because our guiding story stopped working. It just was like... That's not actually guiding me where I believe it would be good to go anymore, at least not in totality. And that kind of upset the, upset the apple cart. We had to reconsider, right? We had to go exploring. But when they're working, oh, my goodness, right? Let me just give you an example. Some of you might have seen this posted in various places. I, I was kind of intrigued. One of my kids sent this, our way. If I had worked, as a, as a person, if I had worked remuneratively full-time, from when Jesus was born, so the beginning of the common era, until today, making $2,000 an hour. I hadn't paid any taxes, and I'd saved, I hadn't had any expenses. I'd saved every penny of that remuneration. I would have about $8.3 billion today. I would probably be retired. <laughs> there would also be 30 Americans richer than me Woo! and when i first read that i'm like oh the internet but i actually kind of chased it down a bit and that's the math actually goes there uh, quite predictably now that there is a wealth gap in our culture is not a mystery to anybody what sort of myth what sort of guiding story explains that gap is another matter entirely. And it's one about which we'll encounter considerable disagreement, not least of all between those who hold wealth, in which group I would, by any global measure, have to include myself, and those who don't. The prevailing explaining story on offer is one we might broadly call capitalism. It's often offered in conjunction with a religious story that's about Judeo-Christian beliefs, about which we might use a word like blessing. In other words, uh, again, shorthand here, but I'm rich because God is on my side or because God approves of my beliefs or because God is a capitalist. And also, you know, obviously, uh, someone for whom democracy is right. You know, like the prevailing beliefs, whatever they are. These are the sorts of stories that Hersey would say also create what she calls grind culture. These are the kinds of stories that, that... keep many of us working at a machine pace and struggling to accept that we have worth that can be measured in ways other than output or dollars. It's a story that she would contend has actually colonized our minds and one that we can't know freedom from without decolonizing our minds. I was uh, talking with somebody recently who spent uh, about 20 years or so as a a working pastor. They were in, in ministry together with their partner. Family grew up in that setting and they've been out of that for about 4 years now or so. They they recently had to move physical houses here in the city because they had a neighbor who was aggressively violent and who was threatening their kids safety and <coughs> provoking them and it was just it got untenable they actually sold the house bought a different house moved physically because of it. And their new neighbors just are lovely. Just the the whole block it sounds like. It just they're having these beautiful experiences with their neighbors. And so this person was talking to their partner one day and they said I, I just feel like we should do something to tell our neighbors we think they're wonderful, right? And partner was like, "Well, I think that's a great idea." And also, you know, we don't have a bunch of money to throw an event or something like that, which they'd be inclined to do. So, what could we do? And, and, and partner was like, oh, "I'm going to bake some. I'm just going to bake some stuff, and we're just going to go around and tell people, right?" And so they go up to door number one, knock on the door, and and person answers. Elderly couple in this case, and. and these, these folks say, uh, you know, we just wanted to bring over some, some baked stuff just as a way of saying thank you for being such lovely neighbors. We really like you guys, and we're really glad that you're here and that we're here. People on the other side of the door, like, do this. I mean, they burst into tears, right? And when we were talking about this, this, this person and I were speaking about this together. They said, I thought about it later, and I realized it was the first time in a long time where there was no bait and switch, I wasn't over there with cookies to say, we really like you guys, and oh, by the way, we have a Bible study at our place in a week, or we work at this church down the block, and you should come by, or like there just was no pitch. The whole story was, we just, we like you, and we're so glad that you're here and that we're here together. How lovely. And it was so unusual and extraordinary in the receiver's experience that they just, they just came in the best sort of way. I think in this case, undone a little, right? That there would be a way to operate in the world that is not transactional, (laughs) you know, that has the kind of authenticity that is asking for nothing in return, is so unusual, so foreign, and so lovely and right in our souls that when we encounter it, it kind of knocks us over. Little pause button here. All of that stuff that I've been talking about the last little bit, that could all sound like a diatribe against wealth, free markets, capitalism in general, and so on. And maybe at some level it is, but it's actually, I believe, about a much wider set of problems than that. It's about whatever sort of systems keep us living in ways that we are increasingly aware make us physically, mentally, relationally, spiritually unwell. I think we can, if we choose to, get glimpses of those kinds of systems almost everywhere. For many of us, certainly for me, I feel like I can see bits and pieces of those systems woven into my life and choices all over the place. They're just everywhere. We're immersed. Usually, I don't see them. And I think that's most often because I'm not looking. Sometimes, I think it's because I don't want to look. Because the same systems that are making me unwell are also the systems that are delivering me the illusion and sometimes the experience, lived experience of comfort, of relative ease, of being in control of something. And sometimes I don't see them because, honestly, I'm not sure what I'm looking for. I haven't learned to look for these. In fact, I would argue, at least in my experience, that I've been trained to not look for them because seeing them is disruptive. Once you see them, you can't unsee them. And, uh, and then you have to figure out what you're going to do. So it's either internally and or externally disruptive. Either I live with a dissonance once I've seen this, or so what we were talking about earlier, right? What am I, how am I going to respond to this? What can seem like an intractable conflict. So... In the interest of exploring what I believe in all of this and of offering to anyone who might be interested either now or at some point in the future in exploring this general realm we've been talking about, what I want to wrap up with here today is I want to pass along some questions that I'm starting to be more aware of that can help me see what's broken, which is usually one of the first steps in the kinds of slow and meticulous action that Hersey's talking about, the kinds of things that might make things better that resist the things that are broken. So I'm just going to leave you with this list of questions. I'm not going to unpack them. I'm not asking them rhetorically so I can answer them. They're just for our consideration. All right? Are there ways that I'm living under or with capitalism, uh, sorry, are the ways that I'm living under or with capitalism normal for a human being? What is a normal human life? Am I unworthy as a person? if I am not unworthy, what are the systems that tell me otherwise? And how are those systems getting or holding my attention? So they can send that message, that I'm unworthy unless. Who was I as a person? This is a deep dive if you go down this path. Who was I before being exposed to the kinds of oppressive systems that might make me believe lies about my worth and the worth of my fellow human beings? That's a... I'll date myself here with a pop culture reference, but uh, it's either Eagles or Don Henley. I think it's a Don Henley song that has the line in it, find your inner child and kick its little ass. This is, this is a path. You go down this question, that takes you down that path. Usually it comes back to who was I as a child if I grew up in a safe, nurturing place before these other messages got in there. What have I been told about my worth and existence? By whom? And do I believe it? How can I, how can we make space to transcend the confines of grind culture even in small or incremental ways? Part of my answer is the table, personally. It's that five minutes at the beginning. Like that, that's part of how I'm trying to answer that question, uh, to be perfectly honest. Like I, there's lots of reasons for a community like this to exist, and for me personally, that's a, that's a really meritorious one. How can I make space or hold space, if that's a more familiar phrase to you, the whole idea set behind that phrase. How can I make or hold space in general? How can I, how can we make something that we might think of as home? How can we be flexible in the process of these things and still be the best sorts of subversive? As opposed to the B-movie, turn over the table, shoot somebody that you don't like kind of resistance. What does the resistance look like as we talked about a few weeks ago to use bell hooks uh, idea for it, it where she would just flat out say any resistance movement that isn't to have at its core love is doomed to failure or to repeating the mistakes it's resisting. How can, we, how can we resist in a way that has love at the center? And to that end, how can we craft a resistance that is in the final event dependent on love more than it is dependent on being right? How can I, how can we work together to make the world that we want to live in and that welcomes others who might dream of a different one? So again, to be clear, these are not questions I'm asking rhetorically. I'm not asking them so I can turn the corner next week and, you know, unload the correct answers on all of us. These are questions that I am asking, first of all, of myself. And I offer them to you for your consideration, for your exploration, and uh, depending where your own journey takes you, perhaps, for your application. As I often choose to do, I want to leave the last word to Hersey, who says when she's talking about how we might approach these sorts of questions, she says, of the journey into these kinds of questions, quote, we learn how to make a way by building as we go. We learn how to make a way by building as we go. So, if we are ready, when we are ready, And that's different for everybody. Let's not wait for a perfect plan for a resistance movement. That's not actually how you start one. When we're ready to engage with questions like this, we should, as we're able, just get started. Five minutes. Just get started. All right. Peace.